This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you like the New European podcast, you're going to love the New European newspaper. Unique content from people who love being European as much as you do. A different take on current affairs, bringing insight to untold stories from within our continent and explaining how they shape our lives. And page after page of fabulous arts and culture coverage from across Europe. It's on sale at newsagents every Thursday, but make sure you don't miss a copy by subscribing. We've got a special time-limited offer just now. Go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe and you get the newspaper delivered every week anywhere in the UK for just £10 a month. And you also get full access to our e-edition. Hello again, snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European Podcast. It's a British eye on European politics and culture from the people who bring you the New European newspaper. My name is Steve Anglesey, and oh, my snowflakes, my snowflakes, are we at the end of an age? As we record this, Boris Johnson is in the grip of Curtain's Gate, Dyson Gate, Cummings Gate, Pile of Bodies Gate. And judging from the state of the buffoon, he's also in the grip of the baby gate on the stairs at his remodelled flat. What's he going to do now there's no Dominic Cummings there to explain to him that what you really want to do is just smash through the gate with a bulldozer and take back control of the stairs? Is there a mysterious wealthy Tory donor on hand to show Boris how to carefully lift the latch and replace it so little Wilfred doesn't tumble down the stairs into the cabinet office and end up replacing Gavin Williamson as the education secretary and doing a better job? On today's podcast, we'll be talking about Boris Johnson, Dominic Cummings, the toxic disregard for standards at number 10 with two new European writers. Our editor at large, Alistair Campbell, who knows his way around Downing Street. And our diarist, Tim Walker, who knows his way around Boris Johnson, having worked with him at the Daily Telegraph. And in the final part of our look ahead to the May the 6th elections in the UK, 
We'll be talking to Chris Deering about the challenge to Nicola Sturgeon now and maybe in a future Indie Ref 2 from Labour's Anna Sawa. And throughout the podcast, we'll be featuring your suggestions on how best to redecorate Boris Johnson's Downing Street flat. Tony Kaye says it should be redecorated with spaffing up the wall. Kevin Ferran says it should definitely be redecorated with whitewash. And Peter Clay says I'd get Del Boy and Rodney to do it in that nice luminous paint. More of those later. And now I'm joined by a former Downing Street Press Secretary and a Director of Communications and Strategy. He's also a best-selling author whose latest volume of diaries is available now. He'll be hosting Good Morning Britain alongside Susanna Reid during Mental Health Awareness Week in May. I do hope they get him a new chair. I think the cushioning may have gone after the last film. He's also editor-at-large of The New European, and of course, he's best known as the man who plays the bagpipes at the end of these podcasts, as my lovely partner, Joe, always says, your voice on the podcast puts me to sleep, and then Alistair Campbell's bagpipes wake me up. Alistair, an incendiary verdict on Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings from you in this week's New European, under the headline, When Thieves Fall Out. Uh, what, what does happen when thieves fall out? Well, they turn on each other um, and they, you know, they just become, I guess their true character comes through. Um, I actually don't think, by the way, I I don't think my, I was deliberately not going over the top this week. I sometimes do go over the top, I freely admit. Um, I was also making the point about this thing about, you know, I started off the piece by recalling a, a dinner that Tony Blair had in 2007 for all the original 1994 staff. And, you know, we were... We were, we were a really, really strong team, strong personalities, people who could fall out. But, you know, we never, there was never, there was none of that nastiness that you're seeing now. Um, and, you know, you get the feeling with Cummings that he's, I don't know, I mean, I barely know the guy, but you get the feeling he's on a real mission of destruct. Um, now, I happen to think that Johnson deserves to be destroyed because I think he's a truly disreputable person who should never have been elected leader of the Conservative Party, should never have been allowed to get Brexit over the line. And, you know, and, and is damaging the country and our standing in the world. I really believe that. Um, but the thing about, and, and you know, I just did, an, I just came off a, an interview with Irish Radio. I was on with Andrew Bridgen, who was saying, you people who, you know, you all called Cummings a liar. And now you're saying he's the fountain of all truth. I'm saying, I'm saying no such thing. They're both, as I say in the piece, they're both as bad as each other. Mm. But it was the cabinet that was saying, and Johnson, who was saying Cummings was a man of great honour and integrity. Yes, it was. Yes. I mean, he, he defended him and then six months later he was out. And now here we are another four or five months on. And, and uh, you're, you're right. He seemed, he does seem to be bent on revenge. I mean, there are so many aspects to all of this. And, you know, although we seem to be consumed with soft furnishings at the moment, it could be the other parts of it that cause the most damage to Boris Johnson. What are the aspects of what's happened to him over the last week that you think are potentially the most damaging and, and, you know, obviously, we would like to see Boris Johnson. Uh, we would like to see the back of Boris Johnson. How serious is this for him, do you think? It's very hard to tell when you're kind of in the middle of a yeah. situation like this. I mean, look, I think it's serious because the issues are really serious. And what they want to do, this is what this guy Bridgen was doing on the radio. And he was saying, oh, you know, if, if all we can talk about is wallpaper and curtains, it's because they've got nothing else to talk about. What we're talking about, and actually this is the piece I wrote last week's paper, is whether, as a country, we still think that standards, basic standards in public life matter. And, you know, I'm absolutely determined. In fact, that was the headline last week. Who's CL? I'm determined that everybody 
should memorize the seven standards, principles of public life, honesty, openness, objectivity, selflessness, integrity, accountability, and leadership by example, because I think they matter. And, you know, what they're doing, this thing they're doing, these lies they're telling about, you know, oh, well, Tony Blair spent more. He didn't. There is a budget for the upkeep of the state rooms, etc., and that gets spent. Uh, when Tony Blair and Cherie Blair went in and didn't particularly, Tony said to me, I don't really fancy the idea of sleeping in Ken Clark's bed. And they got a new bed. They bought it. They paid for it. They didn't go grubbing to some bloody Tory donor to do it. So I think that it, it, that's what matters. And I thought Keir Starmer and I, I was really chuffed, actually, both Keir Starmer and Liz Savile Roberts, the leader of Plyde in Parliament, both read the full seven principles. That's what this is about. And, you know, character really matters, the character of a politician. It matters. And the, one of the reasons Johnson is the prime minister is because he persuaded quite a lot of, you know, decent working class and middle class people. They persuaded them that he was a character who was on their side. Well, I agree as a character, but he's not on their side because of the character that he really is, which I think is being exposed. And the other thing that I think is potentially lethal for them is that, and this, look, let's be honest, this is why they're desperate to avoid a proper public inquiry into the, into the pandemic. While the pandemic was hitting us, just go through it. He had holiday one in Mustique, and mm. we still don't know who paid for it. He then had holiday two in Chevening, because there was some work going on at Chequers. Chevening, normally used by the, the Foreign Secretary, he had some a holiday there where he was ending one marriage and promising to get married to... Uh, to carry, who turns out was pregnant, okay? Meanwhile, sending Dominic Cummings to, to, in his stead to some of the pandemic crisis meetings. This guy, by the way, that he now says is totally untrustworthy, he was then trusting almost to make the decisions for him in relation to something as serious as the pandemic, which he wasn't taking seriously. And meanwhile, what were they doing when they weren't sorting out the end of the marriage one? They were ordering bloody 10,000 sofas and 3,000 quid bedside tables. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. I honestly think, I honestly think, I was talking to a, an Irish friend of mine earlier uh, who said that if this was an Irish politician, they'd be out on their ass by now. Well, I mean, the standard response to that, and I think you probably heard it a, a, a little while ago from Andrew Bridgen, and we've heard it from, uh, he certainly said this on Newsnight the other night, we've heard it from Boris Johnson, is that the general public don't really care about it, and it's got no cut through with the general public. It's not what people are talking about on the doorsteps when people campaigning for the, the May elections. Is that true? And when, you're in, when you were in Downing Street, how did you measure what was cutting through with the general public? Well, it's a mixture of things. I think a lot of it's instinct. Um, and a lot of it is, you know, you do have people who are going out on the doorsteps and they will report back. But I would take all that with a pinch of salt. Is there anybody in the country who doesn't at the moment know that this row is going on about the flat and what have you? Now, do they care more about dealing with COVID? Do they care more about jobs and schools and hospitals? Of course they do. And so should the government. But it's the government's own, it's Johnson's character and the government's own incompetence that have got to a place where, you know, and I saw that Therese Coffey on the television the other morning on Good Morning Britain, and she was like, 
I could see her so frustrated. I want to talk about this and all, about and all they're asking me about. But the reason they're asking about it is not because they're not interested in the other stuff. People are interested in the other stuff. It's because these questions are being raised and created by them. And honestly, believe me, and I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, I've done it myself at times, and you can talk to the people And when I used to debrief the media. I would honestly, I would regularly say, look, you, you lot may want to go on about Derry Irvin's wallpaper, but I'm telling you. Now, when you're at that point, what it means is that sometimes there is a clash of the agenda, but don't believe anybody who tells you that something's not coming up on the doorstep because everything comes up on the doorstep. Now, is this the most important issue in the world? No, it's not. Is it? of interest to the public and of and in the public interest, whether our prime minister is a man of truth or not, 100%. And, I, I, and believe me, over time, that's going to that's gonna matter. And if I can just go back to the column I wrote last week, that was before all this stuff really kicked off, when I was talking about the standards in public life. And, you know, Johnson tried to make this about Cameron. It was a very deliberate thing when the Greensill story was going and said, oh, we'll have a review. We're not having a review into COVID. We're not having an inquiry into this, that, and the other. We'll do it on camera. What he was trying to do is to say, that was then, this is now, and I'm clean. And everybody knows that's not true. And I think that's the point at which the media thought, I sod this for a game. This is ridiculous. These guys, these, this guy is, is literally gaslighting us now. And I made the point in the piece that one of the reasons Joe Biden is president now uh, it's not that they were all Americans are talking the whole time about Trump being a liar and Trump being this and Trump being that. But over time, it gets through. And one of the reasons Biden won is because people were yearning for truthful, trustworthy, honest leadership. And Biden was the man. Now, I think there's lots of people complaining about Keir Starmer at the moment. And listen, I've complained about Labour not being aggressive enough, not campaigning hard enough, not doing this, that and the other. But... I could see the makings of that as a very, very, very clear dividing line in the Commons the other day. Yes, there were some there were some interesting moments in that, weren't there? I mean, something that has been consuming people on on social media and aspects of that, I think, is that on Wednesday he brought up the the pile of bodies remark, and he reminded Boris Johnson, who of course is denying saying that, that you know let the bodies pile up. He reminded him that lying to the Commons is a resigning offence. Never mind the fact that he lies in the Commons all the time. By the way, there's not. Do you think that there's a, a tape of Boris Johnson saying this when you were in Downing Street? Did people record things? I, I just find it extraordinary that Dominic Cummings, among his other admissions, is, is is one that he's told his aides to record everything that's said. Well. I don't know. Um, look, did people ever record stuff when they were in for meetings and conversations? I honestly don't know. I mean, people are not meant to have their mobile phones with them in Downing Street because right. they're tracking devices. A lot of people completely ignore that. Uh, one of the reasons, by the way, why it's ridiculous that Johnson still sort of is all doing this what's happening and texting and all the rest of it is because, you know, unless he's got a phone that's been developed since we left, I don't think there's a phone that you can be 100% absolutely 100% sure that nobody's sort of tracking it. You know, what, what, what I find extraordinary about that bit with Cummings is what it says about Johnson's judgment that he was there, mm. because they knew what Cummings was like. They've known what Cummings is like for years. They knew what it was like when, when David Cameron, when, he was, when Cummings was working for Gove and Cameron said, no, we cannot have that guy in the close to the heart of government. And then he did the referendum and Johnson brought him in. So they know who they and what they were dealing with. So look, I never taped, <laughs> I never taped a conversation with Tony Blair. 
Did Cummings tape conversations with Boris Johnson with a tape recorder or a phone inside his pocket, doing it without Johnson knowing? I've got no idea. But And also this thing about whether he said it. Look at what they've done. They helped to kill record numbers of people. The pandemic got out of control in this country because of the decisions that were not taken in the first few weeks. Now, the, the government just wants us to talk about vaccination, which everybody is prepared to say has gone incredibly well and fair play to everybody involved. But in those first few weeks, they did not get on top of it. And tens of thousands of people died as a result of it. Not all of them died because of the government, but some of them certainly did. And you know what I thought? The other moment that didn't get nearly the attention that it should have done this week, that really said something about Johnson's character. Seven times he's refused to meet the COVID-19 memorial group. Yeah. They've stopped even replying to their letters and he's been invited to go to that war and he went in the middle of the night when there was nobody there. Pathetic. It is pathetic. One thing that interests me about your experiences, I mean, obviously you, you've had, so you mentioned Derry Irving's wallpaper and you've had much rockier moments than that at, at number 10. When yeah. you're in the middle of something like this, how much bandwidth do you have for actually thing, doing things that, that matter, like running the country or, or, you know, in this case, trying to manage a pandemic? What, what will be happening in number 10 now? Will they be getting on with business or will they just be looking for ways out of this mess? Well, I don't know because I don't know this number 10. And what I do know is this number 10 bears no relation to the number 10 that, that, that we ran. Um, and, and that is feedback I get from people who are, you know, have, have crossed the generations, as it were. People who, you know, you, this is the other thing. You, you meet civil servants who are in utter despair about the place uh, just because it's so incompetent and so ragged and, and everything's sort of day-to-day, hand-to-mouth. I mean, look, I, could, I think it was Peter Mandelson's second resignation was right at the height of one of the really big moments in relation to, to Iraq. So the truth is you do have the bandwidth, but what you have to have, this is why leadership is so important. You know, when Tony was in charge, if when that stuff was going on, you know, big stuff that the media were obsessing about, you have to be clear. Tony, Tony wouldn't be watching the news, wouldn't be reading the papers. We'd, I wouldn't be watching the news or reading the papers. You've got to focus on the things that you can deal with. You know, to be fair, I don't normally, you know, the other day when I saw Johnson out and he was, you know, doing with his bloody yellow jacket and his hard hat, which I think he goes to bed in that yellow jacket, but he was out, he was doing stuff. You have to carry on doing stuff. But I think that the the, weak, the other weakness I sense with this Downing Street, John, Johnson doesn't really do the, he's doing, he's treating like a campaign the whole time. Hmm. Um, now, okay, we're in the local elections, but he is the prime minister. And so you don't, your bandwidth gets reduced, but it's up to you the extent to which you allow it to be reduced. Are there, I mean, who around him is, is there that he can rely on now? Is there, is there enough quality around him? And, and what do you think the role of, of, of Carrie Simmons is? Has is, is, is that been overhyped in the way that, you know, people obsessed about Sherry uh, Booth continually but I, I'm guessing that you would say that she wasn't um, she wasn't half as important as, as, as she was portrayed by some sections of the media. Look, the honest answer is I don't know because I don't know them. <laughs> Look, I, I think in the end the other thing I'd say is that something like that about the refurbishment of, of the flat. Johnson's a politician and mm. he's a politician who knows what the media are like. Either she was doing all that stuff without any reference whatsoever or he really is an entitled you know, so-and-so, who has lost all sense of judgment. Because, sure, you look, 
I, I'm not, I can't promise, I can't say that I'm the sort of biggest expert on interior design, right? But if I, I, I just know that if I was in that situation, if I was in that situation with Tony and Cherie, you know, and sometimes this was difficult with Cherie because I, I, I would say, look, I know it's a really personal thing, but because it involves Tony, there are potential political implications. So things like, you know, where they went on holiday, things like, you know, uh, what they spent their money on, things like even things like which restaurants they went to. These were subjects that be could become politically, you know, relevant and particularly resonant for people. So, and I thought one of the most, because um, I'm doing this Good Morning Britain thing in the middle of May, I've been watching Good Morning Britain this week and yesterday when they did the thing about the, you know, the cost of some of this stuff, to most people out there, in, the, in any time, never mind the middle of a pandemic, 3,000 quid for a little table that looked like something I used to make in a woodwork class, <laughs> right? Or 10,000 quid for a sofa that looks like something you, I mean, I promise you I've never been inside a, a high-end Arab brothel, but it sort of looked a bit like something you'd see. I mean, that, 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 <laughs> that sort of main picture that keeps getting showed. It's amazing. I mean, whoever follows Johnson... I can't believe they're going to keep it. They're going to rip it out. It looks like a magic eye painting up on a wall. Oh, I mean, you've, you've, you know, you've dealt with these. You've been through these things and you've given PR advice to people who are going through crises. Why doesn't he, why doesn't he just come out and say who paid for the makeover and who paid for Mustique? Why didn't he just come clean about it? I don't really understand why, what's in it for him to, to keep obfuscating like this. Well, I wonder if it's because it, it, will, it will reveal a, a clear breach of the rules. And if, you know, the, the introduction to the um, ministerial code, which has his forward in it, filled with additional guff that they wrote in about Brexit, it says that if, if well, the two things, you mentioned one already, knowingly misleading the House of Commons. As you say, Keir went on it yesterday, but the reason that Peter Stevanovich video that I wrote about last week has got 13 million views, and why my clip on it for the BBC News got over 2 million views in a day, is because he lies all the time. In the Commons. Yeah. So there's that one about misleading the House. But then the other one where he may be in breach of the ministerial code is this thing about accepting gifts. You can't accept gifts that make you beholden to others. Now, anybody, well, that was the whole, you know, the whole thing about Peter Mandelson um, with Jeffrey Robinson. Jeffrey gave him a loan for, uh, for his mortgage and Peter didn't declare it. And he became the Secretary of State for Trade. And Jeffrey was under investigation by the department. That's a, you know, that's a potential conflict of interest right there and then. And if you're the prime minister, getting given anything by anybody of value is a potential conflict. It's, uh, I, I, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? It just seems, it just seems so basic. All of this I think it is. I think it's. I think it's a combination of who he is and what he is, and the background he's from, and that. Yeah. That sort of Etonian Oxbridge Bullingdon Club entitlement that you know they're allowed to smash up pubs, they're allowed to break the rules, they should be allowed to get in. They're there to make the rules, not to obey them. It's that. Allied to, I think they want to smash the conventions. They want mm. to get away with as much as they can. And don't underestimate either, by the way. These, the, you know, this is a guy who said that his two hundred and seventy-five thousand pound salary at the Telegraph was chicken feed for the right. And, and look at look at Cameron and the mess he's getting himself into in Greensill. In with inside a part of the the Conservative Party, the only th the thing by which you are measured is your wealth. That's true. 
and, and, and so, so they, they want wealth and they, they actually do think it's unfair that they only get paid whatever it is, £160,000 a year to be prime minister. I don't even know what it is anymore, <laughs> but, you know, they think, they think that's unfair. Amazing. I wanted to wrap up with a couple of things about about Keir Starmer because he said he said this a couple of times on Peston on Wednesday night and he said it again on Thursday. If, if I am Prime Minister, I will clean up Westminster. Is this a, a winning strategy? Do you think? And I'm sure Andrew Bridgen has pointed this out. Is it a credible strategy? Bearing in mind you know, that there are scandals in all political parties and Labour are going through a big one in Liverpool at the moment. Yeah, there are. And, and, and he did exactly make that point. Um, <laughs> yeah, you can look, I would argue, let's just take it away from the Labour Tory thing. I would argue that after all the stuff of sleaze in the 90s, that John Major did do something to clean it up. He did have the Nolan Commission and it did report, and I think it did make change. Then you had the expenses scandal. That was a disaster for the parliament. But actually, I think that led to change as well. So I think you'll always, you can always have, there always will be scandals. I mean, you know, politicians are human beings and, you know, in some ways more flawed than the average human being, a lot of them. Um, so you're always going to have scandals. But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't say part of what you want to do in politics and in government is to try to make the standards higher. And, I, you know, the point I made about Biden earlier, I don't think Keir's going to, I don't think it's a winning strategy to say, right, our big thing is going to be cleaning up politics. Yeah. Labour's big thing has got to be, we're going to run a stronger economy, we're going to have better schools, better hospitals, more, that, that's where the, 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 the policy strategy has got to be rooted. But I do think that thing about character and the sort of sense of basic truth and basic decency that took Joe Biden awful long way, I think, against Trump. Added to which, as you know, you and I have discussed this before, added to which Biden was inside Trump's head in a way that Biden did not let Trump inside yes. his head. And what I really enjoyed about PMQs yesterday, I felt it was the first time where I thought he is losing the plot because Keir's got inside his head. Yes. And Keir was sitting there just thinking, hmm. I think I've got inside his head here. Yeah, the um, Kevin Keegan moment, as it's been uh, hailed on. I know, and it's the twenty-fifth anniversary today. It is. That's right. It is. Yeah. yeah, we're recording this on Thursday. It is the twenty-fifth anniversary. Um, before I let you go, just just one more. I mean, May the sixth is is looming. Nicola Sturgeon's obviously going to win in Scotland. Sadiq Khan's obviously going to win in London. Andy Burnham's going to obviously win in in uh, Greater Manchester. There are three big traps for Labour, aren't there? There, there? There's there's Wales, there's the West Yorkshire mayor, there's the Hartlepool by-election. I mean, who knows what's going to happen in the, in the in the Midlands? If the Conservatives take two or three of those big prizes and do well elsewhere, does everything we've talked about here just not matter? Will Boris Johnson have got away with it again? You know, look, I've been through a lot of local elections, and you know, one of the things I'm slightly dreading about been doing Good Morning Britain in the week after the local elections is that they're all going to be on full narrative. Labour will be saying, oh, well, it was very difficult because of the pandemic. And, you know, the Lib Dems will be saying, well, it's very difficult because, you know, we've been squeezed by this. that." Yeah. They'll all have their kind of line. And the Tories will say, well, it shows that, you know, whatever, if they do, you know, as you say, reasonably well in three of those scenarios, if they, if they win Hartlepool, but do badly in Wales, they'll only focus on Hartlepool. If they do well in Wales but lose Hartlepool, you know, that's just the way I'm afraid the game gets played. But I think that, that to, as far as I'm concerned, this stuff matters whatever the results on May the 6th. Alistair Campbell, thank you so much. All right, Steve. Mm -hmm.
And now some more of your thoughts on how to redecorate Boris Johnson's personal apartment in Downing Street. Peter Richard Scott Brooks says he would introduce floor-to-ceiling reproductions of Francis Bacon's Crucifixion, Edward Monk's The Scream, Gustave Doré's illustrations of Dante's Inferno, Hieronymus Bosch's Garden of Earthly Delights, and uh, from the Sistine Chapel, The Last Judgment. He says all of that would make Boris Johnson feel very at home. Uh, David Guthrie says he would put holograms of Dominic Cummings in every room, plus a widescreen TV showing constant reruns of John Lewis Christmas ads. And Joy Anderson says, I would give him an Alexa that only understood Latin. I think he'd quite enjoy that, though, Joy. And John O'Reid of this parish, who's producing this podcast this week, says he would put a lovely blue and yellow starry theme in the bedroom. That was nice. So, more of your ideas there. And to pick over the Boris Johnson scandals, uh, I'm joined by Tim Walker, the diarist of the New European, for many years, the diarist of the Daily Telegraph, when alongside him, Boris Johnson was a a very highly paid columnist on the newspaper. I'm, I'm guessing, Tim, that he didn't have his own desk there at Telegraph Towers, but what was... What was your what were your interactions with Boris Johnson? What was he like as a colleague? I like to be able to say he had a desk near me with a Union Jack on it, and uh, <laughs> it was. I'd like to say that, but Johnson was not a well, a factory floor journalist in the way that perhaps you and I are. You know, he wasn't actually there often on the editorial floor. I got to see something of him in, in terms of going to parties, in, in, you know, in terms of my mandrake role. And I'd see him at book launches. He would always be there, particularly if, if the proprietor of the paper at the time or their family were there. He always made a point of that because he was nothing if not a creep. Conrad Black, I remember, was at a party when he owned the paper uh, uh, to launch a book that Bill Deeds had written. And of course, Johnson was there. And he he had a keen eye for the location of power and a keen eye for the location of money. So he didn't waste any time particularly talking to Bill Dees, but he spent all his time essentially ingratiating himself to Conrad Black. And I think about the relationships in his life, the women and so forth, and I just wish he had the same passion for them that he had for octogenarian billionaires, because they they really did seem to turn him on. And, and, you know, you and I, I suspect in our careers, uh, spend all of our time maybe sucking up to editors. He, he, he went one above us and he sucked up to proprietors. And this is really, the, 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 you know, why he's got to where he is, because he's always had a, made a beeline for extremely wealthy men. Always men, by the way. What, what effects did Boris Johnson have on the Daily Telegraph itself, do you think? He never went out to the pub uh, with us. He, he wasn't a collegiate journalist. I don't think really he felt comfortable in the company of other journalists because you see, you know, most of us have come up through local papers. We've been, you know, done all the sort of local newspaper stuff in the newsroom. I don't think he felt comfortable uh, with us because we kind of knew a lot more about journalism than him. I knew some of the sub-editors on the paper extremely well, and they were often, you know, conscientious people, checking his copy, trying to make sure that it was factually accurate. They would often phone him up and say, look, you know, I think this is wrong. Can you, you know, can you double check this? And Johnson would normally sort of explode with rage and say, you know, don't you realise I'm a personal friend of David Barclay? And I think maybe this is the problem now that Johnson has, because his whole career, his whole life up until now, 
has been about saying, look, don't you realize I'm a friend of so-and-so who's rich and powerful? Now he is the man who's in charge. So he's got nobody really uh, to kind of cite as his authority. He is now the man in charge. And that's the problem we've got into. Well, I mean, Alistair Campbell has just reminded me that when Johnson was was working at the Telegraph or he was he was an MP then or a cabinet minister, but he was still writing for the Telegraph, he, he called his Telegraph uh, salary chicken feed, I think. What kind of money was he getting there and how, how, how did that compare to, to what other people were getting? And was it a source of resentment? Oh, a massive source of resentment, because essentially he was on 270,000 a year. And, you know, salaries at the Telegraph were never that high, even when I was there. And now they're significantly lower. That You know, you only have to see the kind of people that they put up on TV and so on. They're not, you can tell they're not terribly well-paid people. They are cheap, you know, they're, they're dime a dozen journalists. And that's the problem, you know, and that's why essentially none of us really, you know, we resented him. And there were two, there are two kinds of journalists. So journalists like you and me have come up through local papers who, you know, who, who know how it works. And, and then there are other people like Johnson who got a job pretty much immediately after a very brief spell on the Wolverhampton Express and Star, which surprised me a bit. He did work there very briefly. After that, he, he joined the Times comment desk. And I've seen a real difference now between what I would call comment journalists and just normal factory floor journalists who write, write about news. And Johnson, Johnson all his life has been told that his views are interesting and what he says is interesting because he's worked in comment journalism. And that, that is in a way the problem, he's been indulged. And I think he also worked out quite early on that, you know, if question time phone up and they say, you know, what are your views on Muslim terrorism, say, you know, if, if, if he immediately starts attacking everybody who belongs to that faith and says how awful they are and how they should all be thrown out of the country, you'll be on question time. If you say the Muslim faith, like any other faith, has good and bad people in it, and, you know, many of my friends are Muslims and so forth, you're not going to get on to question time. So you've got to, in a sense, Johnson worked this out early. You've got to say extreme things. You've got to say them in, in a sort of very eloquent and articulate way, but you've got to be extreme. They, they don't want people like me or you on TV or the radio these days because we say, well, on the one hand or the other hand, and that's boring. And, and Johnson worked that out early on. Who want, Who needs new ones? Exactly. Do you think he'll? Do you think he'll end up going back to the Telegraph or, or or somewhere even more lucrative? Johnson was a tool of the proprietors of the Telegraph, who certainly Sir David Barclay, who I did get to know quite well when I was doing a, a putatively, I was going to write his biography at one point. He he was clearly a tool of of of. Uh, of David Barclay, who had very strong views as, as his brother Frederick did about Brexit. And I think, well, David's dead now, Fr Frederick's still alive. I think Frederick will take the view, what's the point having him back? He's served his purpose. He's not a particularly charming man. He's not that nice. Uh, his private life is a bit of a mess, an ongoing, an ongoing crisis after another. So I doubt they would, I think they'd be foolish to have him back. What would be the point? And I also think when he leaves office, he'll be even more toxic now that he is in office and he will lose readers. It's, I mean, is he a good writer, do you think? He kind of, I don't know, I, I, I do tend to struggle with some of these, um, some of the, the, the kind of right-wing writers who are obviously enthralled to people like PJ O'Rourke and, you know, A.A. Gill to a certain extent. Was, was he a, a good writer, do you think? 
I think he is a very thick man's idea of what an intelligent man is. And, you know, I mean, I look at his copy and, you know, okay, I could write something very offensive about uh, women looking like letterboxes. I could, I don't, is that elegant? Is that worthy of Oscar Wilde? Is that brilliant writing? No, I think it's, it's, it's what was called by libel lawyers, vulgar abuse, that's all it is. And I, th I think that's all he's ever really majored in. I, is he a great stylist in the way he writes? No, I don't think so. I think he, he simply cornered the market in pushing it as far as he can and being as offensive as he can in everything he writes. And that's, that's all he is. He's a one-trick pony, he's Mr. Offensive. Yes, he's not big on the detail either. Let's let's just delve into this some of the detail that you have written about uh, about the trouble that he he finds himself in. A couple of weeks ago, you you wrote about mustique, which is something which is kind of hovering on the edge of of the uh, the scandal at the moment. R remind the listeners to, to this podcast why his trip to mustique is important. Well, John Trickett, uh, the, 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 the Labour frontbencher at the time, he complained uh, to the parliamentary standards uh, woman about Johnson's trip. And it's now, uh, it was a year ago that he, more than a year, I think, that he went to Mustique and nothing actually has happened. I put in a call to the parliamentary standards office and I said, look, you know, what's happening to this complaint? And she said, well, you know, the thing is, we don't even have to confirm anymore. We've, we've actually changed the rules a bit about these complaints procedures. We don't even have to confirm that a complaint is actually even being investigated. And the problem is, the way our country is run, it's always been about essentially people behaving properly. And when the parliamentary uh, woman is, is checking on, on something to, to get back to her in reasonable time, to give her the information, to give her, I don't know, the receipts or whatever it is she needs to do her investigation. It does not provide for somebody who, and, and this appears to be what has happened with Johnson, who has just basically said, look, I'm sorry, I'm busy, I'm doing other things, I'm redecorating my flat, I'm, I'm at Checkers. And essentially, that is why there is this inordinate delay. The other problem with, with this, and frankly, it's a problem with all the investigations that are going on now about Johnson, and there's so many, you know, the wallpaper thing is just the latest of so many, is that ultimately, as we saw with Pretty Patel, Johnson is himself judge, jury and executioner. Yes. In relation to this, so he, as he said with Pretty Patel, he can now say about himself, and he can just say, well, you know, okay, maybe they have found that I've behaved improperly and I've been playing around with other people's money in a way that I shouldn't. But he can essentially say, I couldn't care less. I'm not bothered. I'm not going to do anything about it. And this is the problem. He's got this parliamentary majority and these people who go on about, you know, he should step down or whatever. Why? You know, he's got four more years to go. So when, you know, when, when Boris Johnson says, well, I've got a new standards advisor and, I, you know, look, the Electoral Commission will get to the bottom all of, of all of this. Do you have any faith that anything like that is going to happen? Because it seems to me that we're at, at kind of a, a tipping point now, aren't we? Are we at a tipping point when, you know, we're, we're beginning to question whether standards in public life really matter and the, and the, the Nolan principles really matter? Well, in terms of the chap he's put in charge of, you know, standards in public life, I notice that he is a former courtier, you know, to the Queen. And the thing about being a courtier is that you don't get very far if you speak truth unto power. Courtiers are not known for, you know, behaving like John Wayne and you know, telling everybody where to get off. And I don't think this chap will be. 
uh, you know, based on his career up until now. I think the problem with our country and, and up until now it's worked reasonably well, is that all the checks and balances that we actually have are kind of voluntary. And I was, I've been thinking a lot about this and I think about people like Dennis Healy and people like that who I used to interview in the old days. And of course, you know, he was beach master at Anzio. He, you know, he, he had a great war record. All of those people, I think because of the war, they were able to think always about their country above all things. You know, whether they were Tory or Labour, they were able to put the country first. And they thought very, but you know, we, we recall John Profumo when he was discovered lying to the house. That was considered to be in, in his day, a terribly shameful thing to happen. All because these people were essentially gentlemen and they were ladies and they behaved in a certain way. Now, you know, there is a kind of new breed in, 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 in the commons generally not, and in Downing Street who are essentially in it for themselves. I, I mean, there are some honourable exceptions, of course, on both sides of the house. There's some great MPs, but a lot of them essentially don't really understand what public service is about. It's, uh, yes, it's really worrying times, aren't they? Um... A subject that keeps coming up with our readers and one that I know that you have, have have talked about on social media is is Lindsay Hoyle and whether Johnson is is getting an easy ride from the Speaker of the House. Do you, do you think he is, and and why is that? Well, I'll tell you something interesting about being the Speaker. You know, there's no training uh, for that job. There's no on the job training or formal training in relation to that job, and that's the problem. You know, I mean, you're live on television. People are looking at you all over the world, in America and so forth. And, you know, you suddenly have to decide, do you chuck Dennis Skinner out of the house for calling uh, the then Prime Minister David Cameron dodgy Dave, or do you not? And it's, that is the problem, really. I think Lindsay Hoyle is out of his depth. I don't think he's really got his head around, you know, the whole importance of parliamentary sovereignty. Why, like John Burkow, he... He needs to sort of not care what he what he does in relation to the executive, but he needs to keep the executive in check. And I think this is the, the, the issue. And the other thing, of course, he's very aware of old Lindsay Hoyle, I fear, is you, know, he, you get a peerage, essentially, if you behave well. That's a clear message of what happened to John yes. Burkow. You don't get one if you don't. And with that peerage, it's not just your very good attendance allowance. It's not just the expenses. But once you've got the peerage, you can quite easily probably get a few company directorships. There are all kinds of things that make getting a peerage very useful. And I fear, old Lindsay, you know, I don't, I'm just speculating. I fear that he's starting to think, I need to behave myself. And I think this is the problem. I think in a way we need a, we need a speaker who is totally independent. You know, he, there, there shouldn't be any kind of, paybacks there shouldn't be any rewards he should be completely and utterly impartial i think the idea that speakers who behave properly should get peerages eventually i think is is very unhealthy in our country at the moment yes and it's a kind of i mean it's there's no training as you say and you know we, we learned from from john burkow didn't we who the other side complained about constantly that you know the the, the boundaries of the role are not really clear either uh, and, and what uh, what is allowed and what isn't allowed Keir Starmer talks about cleaning up Westminster. What, what, what kind of rules could he institute? I think we need, we, we definitely need the checks and balances to be checks and balances. I think we need uh, a speaker who is independent, a speaker who, you know, is trained in, in the job of being a speaker. 
I think we need two parliamentary uh, watchdogs who are proper watchdogs, who mm. are, again, totally independent. I think up until now, it has, as I say, been, been far too much based on people, you know, behaving in a proper way and you know, doing the decent thing. And clearly this lot, you know, they don't do the decent thing. They reliably do the thing that's not decent. And I think that's the problem. So I'd like to see far more independent uh, safeguards. At the moment, essentially, all we've really got if things go wrong in our country, as we saw with Gina Miller, is the, the law. And using the law, you know, in a democracy is a very blunt instrument. It should never have got to that point. And I think it's very interesting. I thought one of the most interesting things I've seen in the papers for a long time was David Davis now sort of quietly saying, do you know, I, was, I really agreed with Gina Miller in relation to her first <laughs> parliamentary her case about, you know, Article 50 going before Parliament. And I thought that was, that was kind of amusing because, you know, at the time he didn't dare say it, but he left this to this poor isolated member of the public, you know, to go through death threats, to go through all of that, when essentially people like him just sat on their hands and did absolutely nothing at the time. Uh, I want to uh, I want to end by by just talking about two people who um, who listeners, well, I guess they'll be uh, figures of, of real dislike for, for uh, new European podcast listeners. I mean, you've, you've written quite a bit about Dominic Cummings down the years. It's Dominic Cummings. Is, <laughs> it's not a great advert for for the future availability of Dominic Cummings to do secretive work for you I wouldn't have thought if he's if he is uh to coin a phrase spaffing the spaffing the details of his previous employment up and down the up and down the wall what do you think the future holds for Dominic Cummings well we did a piece actually in Mandrake not so long ago saying how he's enrolled with a speaker's agency and the problem with a speaker's agency, and you look at Theresa May, she's, made, she's already made more than a million from, from her speaking engagements, Good even during God. the pandemic, which is quite, you know, which is quite an achievement. You know, she was able to make some trips you know, between the lockdowns and so forth. The thing with a speaking engagement, you, know, you need to look quite good. You know, particularly in America, they like people to you know, wear nice sharp suits and so forth. And particularly in the, in the hard right Republican groups who, who Dominic Cummings will presumably be talking to, they like, you know, a good head of hair, Reagan-esque head of hair, or at least a pretty good Trump comb-over. And of course, in that regard, you know, poor old Cummings is a bit of a disappointment. He's also not exactly very eloquent, or, you know, he's certainly not Churchillian in the way that he speaks. And so for all those reasons, you know, if I was a member of a hard-right Republican outfit, I wouldn't really want to have to sit there listening to Cummings chuntering on. And however you look at it, you know, Cummings has been really associated with failure. Uh, you know, it hasn't really worked out for him personally. Brexit hasn't really been a huge success. Johnson has seen to be a disaster. So again, you know, what would I be willing to spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to pay for him to address my, you know, address my, my organisation in an after dinner speech? I don't think I would, no. So I don't no. think it's not much of a future. He's also quite frightening, isn't he, as well? And then, I mean, the, the other one is somebody who's linked to Dominic Cummings, and you've written about him again this week. You've written a lot about him down the years. And in moments like these, are we, are we wise to keep our eyes on what Michael Gove is doing? I think always. And to be perfectly honest, and I tweeted this the other day, I direct tweeted to Rupert Murdoch. I said, look, is it going to be Michael Gove? When's it going to happen? You know, please let us know. Because essentially he wants... He runs our funny little country. He's the one who's in charge. 
And Gove could not be closer to Rupert Murdoch. And I know for a fact, somebody told me who worked with Michael Gove on the, on the Times, once somebody was walking around a, a secretary saying, where should I put this post-it note where Michael's going to see it? And somebody piped up, stick it on Rupert Murdoch's backside. He's bound to see it there. And, and, and that's the thing. He could not be closer to Murdoch. Now, if Murdoch was smarter, he would see that Gove is a bit geeky. He's, he's not great on TV and he looks a bit odd. And for all those reasons, I don't really think he's going to win elections for the Conservative Party. But look, it's, it's out of our, our, our hands. We've got four more years of this nonsense. Gove could quite easily take over. And it's very interesting, even looking at papers not in the Murdoch stable, such as the Daily Mail, I think they're almost on the brink of saying Johnson has to go. I mean, it's been front page after front page saying how useless Johnson is. And I think about, you know, when they ran their headline, ditch the captain in relation to John Major. Gosh, I mean, Major was... A, 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 an amazingly good prime minister compared to Johnson, and, and they, they, had, they had no reason really to ask for him to go. But now with Johnson, I mean, here's a man we all, you know, the opinion polls are, are showing that we think he's dishonest. The general public think he's dishonest. They can't trust him. Well, who knows whether he'll get away with it with a good result on May the 6th, but we will be, uh, we will be watching closely. Tim Walker, thank you uh, very, very much. Tim Walker, diarist of the New European. Thank you, Steve. And I have some more of your suggestions uh, about how to redecorate Boris Johnson's personal apartment. And Raj uh, has, uh, has, has uh, tweeted, um, and just leading on from what Tim Walker was saying there, he says, uh, how to redecorate Boris Johnson's personal apartment. Just save money by asking Michael Gove what he wants uh, it to look like when he moves in. Jean says uh, she would redecorate Boris Johnson's personal apartment with lots of fridges for hiding in, a couple of ditches also. Uh, and Robert Jeff says put bars on the windows, ensure the main door cannot be opened from the inside, make the flap in the door big enough for food to be passed through three times a day, a mattress on the floor, CCTV in the corner. It's the new John Lewis HMP range. And finally... Uh, this was my favourite of them all from Mark David. Uh, he says, perhaps if we replace the wallpaper with flammable cladding, we might get some direct action from the government to urgently remove it. Joining me now is Chris Deering of the independent non-party think tank Reform Scotland. Chris is also a writer for, among others, The New Statesman, and of course now The New European. He's also the most famous member of the pop combo Fat Cops, whose ranks also include Al Murray and Bobby Bluebell. Welcome, Chris Deering. Hi there. Chris, you have written in this week's New European about the state of play in Scotland, and if we're soon going to find ourselves in uh, an Indy Ref 2 challenge where... Nicola Sturgeon's leading the push to leave the union and Labour leader Anna Sawa is, is leading the campaign to stay. Before we before we talk about the, the piece in particular, the SNP needs there to be a clear uh, pro-independent supermajority, doesn't it, in the Scottish Parliament after May the 6th. How likely is that to happen, do you think? Well, they certainly need an overall majority, which is, I think, a different thing from a supermajority, which is a phrase that suddenly come into Scottish politics and seems to be something that's been invented by Alex Salmond to justify his new Alba party. Um, but they do need an overall majority, either on their own, 
uh, or probably if you add the number of SNP MSPs to the number of Green uh, MSPs who are also pro-independence, and that would get them over the halfway mark uh, if, if that's how the election falls. So they would view that as giving them a democratic mandate to go to Boris Johnson and say, the people of Scotland have elected us in the knowledge that we were committed to a second independence referendum, so let's have it. And the, I mean, the polls seem to indicate that that is going to happen, don't they? Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's no question that the SNP will win this election. Mm. They're miles ahead still, even after 14 years in government. Um, I think it's still possibly debatable as to whether they get that that majority. But if I was betting, I'd probably bet that at the very least, along with the Greens, they'll, they'll have a majority. Um, but it's not such plain sailing after that, because Boris Johnson has made it pretty clear that he's not going to allow a referendum and Holyrood to hold a referendum legally uh, requires Westminster to pass a Section 30 Act, which in effect gives Holyrood the power to hold a referendum. Uh, and uh, as I say, Boris has said he's not in the mood to to do that. So that sets the scene really for something of a constitutional standoff over the next four to five years. We've been talking throughout this podcast about the, the mess that Boris Johnson is in now in Westminster. I mean, it's less than two months ago that, that people were saying the same things about Nicola Sturgeon that they're saying about Boris Johnson now that she was on the brink. Are there, are there any lessons in the way that Sturgeon conducted herself uh, there for Johnson and and do you think that what happened between Sturgeon and, and Alex Salmond is still going to have repercussions for the SNP on May the 6th? Well I, I think it's worth looking back a bit further than that to the last year really of uh, pandemic management if you like mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, Nicola Sturgeon has in effect run the, the Scottish response to to Covid and and in another sense, Boris Johnson has been the Prime Minister of England rather than the UK in a, in a whole bunch of ways. So in Scotland, it was Nicola Sturgeon that was taking decisions about lockdown, about shutting businesses, about confining people to their home, uh, running the NHS and that kind of thing. And she was doing daily televised press conferences. So she was in everyone's homes every day. And I think even you know her, her toughest critics would probably admit that she handled the last year with real commitment and integrity and, and empathy. Um, and that, that has stood her well, uh, even though I think the data coming out of uh, COVID will suggest that there hasn't a huge difference between how Scotland and England coped uh, with, with the pandemic. But I think Scots felt that they were in safe hands, in the hands of someone who was really committed to, and, and you know, feeling the pressure, but, but, but giving her all to to get us through it. Whereas we were looking at Westminster and there was a lot of politicking going on. There was the Com uh, Dominic Cummings stuff. There was a lot of inter-cabinet briefing. Um, uh, and just that sense that, you know, Boris is perhaps not a serious prime minister. I think in Scotland, there's still that historical hangover that we quite like a degree of um, moral sternness in our leaders. Uh, uh, and, and clearly that's not the way Boris operates. And and then, you know, you can get into his background, the old Etonian stuff, that sense of entitlement and the born to rule feel to it, which doesn't play well up up here at all. So so Sturgeon had a hard time during the Salmond uh, 
uh, inquiry uh, and affair, um, and uh, you know there were there were definite problems with the way her government responded to that in terms of handing information over to the the inquiry in terms of her own evidence to the inquiry, the evidence of her husband, who's also chief executive of the SNP. There were contradictions in there. <clears throat> there was a reluctance, perhaps, to to be open um, or transparent, or at least that's how it seemed to those of us watching on. Um, but you know the, the inquiries went the right way for her. Uh, she was largely cleared um, and has been able to come out of that straight into an election campaign where she's very much playing the card of I'm the experienced leader you need at times like this to to, to get you through the recovery from the, the pandemic. So um, her, you know, her poll ratings are still high. Uh, she's still very popular in Scotland. The trust levels are high. The, the opposite for Boris, where they're down somewhere near the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Uh, so, um, you know, are there lessons for Boris? I think they're so different as individuals and as politicians, that, that it would be pointless to really think about that. You know, Sturgeon does it her way and Boris is only ever going to do it Boris's way. I'm calling him Boris, I should be calling him Johnson, clearly. But, yeah. um, you know, he has his own way of doing things and it's you can't really teach that old dog new tricks. I'm talking about favourability and, and before we move on to to, uh, to to your piece in this week's New European, um, Alex Salmond, you know, we're constantly told that Alex Salmond is is personally very unpopular. He's that's, that's a poll this week, a, a Lord Ashcroft poll, I think, where he's at minus thirty four favourability. He's even more unpopular in Scotland than Boris Johnson is, which is which is quite an achievement. Yet there are other polls showing that Alba is on course to to win some seats. What is what is happening there? There's a small hardcore of very dedicated. Uh, yes, voters, Scottish nationalists, um, who think that Sturgeon has been too timid in her approach to independence and to, to holding a second referendum, who thinks that, that she should be much more aggressive, really shaking things up at Westminster, threatening wildcat referendums, threatening to find other ways to, to independence. And she's very vociferously against doing that. She thinks that Scotland has to do this legitimately, has to do it in ways that are seen internationally to be democratically and, and electorally credible for the sake of setting up the new state where they're to were they to win? Um, so Salmon's come in with his team of uh, sort of slightly odd people, and they are very keen to just push on. Uh, they want to put pressure on Sturgeon to to speed things up a bit. Uh, you know, I, I, Salmon personally, I don't think is very popular at all amongst the general population. He is popular amongst a small uh, group of people who are very very dedicated to independence. Um, but I think you know the majority will clearly vote. Uh, if they are going to vote for a pro-independence party, will will vote for the SNP. Salmon needs about five or six percent of the vote in the northeast region on the list system. So the Scottish Parliament has a double electoral system, first past the post for uh, 72 of the MSPs, and then the other 56 are elected through a, a kind of PR system of party lists, and that's where Salmon's standing. So he'll need about 5 or 6% in uh, Aberdeenshire, where he's standing, to, to, to get elected. I don't think there's any guarantee he'll get that. I don't think there's any guarantee Alba will get anyone elected. They might. It might be quite funny if they get someone elected that isn't Alex Salmon, who's then stuck in Holyrood for five years on their own. But I, I, I'd be quite surprised if they ended up with anyone in, in Holyrood after this election. Let's let's turn to this excellent piece in this week's New European, and you begin with by talking about the impact of the 2014 referendum in in Scotland. And for those of us who weren't in Scotland, I mean, I'm guessing that it, had, it has it had a similar divisive effect to the referendum that we had two years later across the whole of the UK. It was worse. Um, I remember wow. writing after the Scottish election and before the Brexit election that 
um, if you like, England didn't know what was about to hit it because I think in advance of Brexit, people were saying it won't be anything like the Scottish uh, referendum. Uh, you know, the, the the things that are at stake, people don't feel as, as deeply. It'll be much more uh, well-mannered and good-humoured. And of course, it was an absolute nightmare from start to finish. But the Scottish referendum was a thing all on its own. Uh, you know, it, it really was divisive. And I think, as I say in the piece, it depends where you were on the debate. On the yes side, people talk about it. You know, they had a great time. They, they enjoyed the marches. They, there was poetry, there was singing, um, there, there, there was literature. Uh, it felt very positive and progressive and they had this vision ahead of them of a, an independent Scotland that would be this wonderful utopia. Um, but on the no side, it was a, a very different picture. So you were dealing, especially on social media, with the, what we call the cybernats, who were ferociously aggressive and incredibly abusive. Um, you know, there were things about, you know, a lot of uh, Better Together posters were getting ripped or torn down if they were up. I knew people that were getting abuse in the streets. Some of the politicians were abused in the street. Uh, and uh, it was just a very difficult environment. And it was very hard to, in a sense, try and play fair and be thoughtful and reasonable and try and see the other side uh, of the argument because unless you were fully committed one way or the other, they would go for you. And um, yeah, it was, a, it was a very unpleasant and, and quite stressful experience, uh, even I suppose even for someone like me who's a, a columnist and is used to that kind of feedback, but it was, it was prolonged and it was, it was difficult. Um, and then after the referendum, it took a long time for things to get back together, if, if they ever have fully. That you know, I think at the moment people are getting along a little bit better, but I don't really doubt in the event of a second referendum that a lot of the same things will happen again, and that's not something I'm looking forward to. In that scenario where Nicola Sturgeon wins this election and there is a majority, supermajority for Alex Salmon uh, fans, um, in that scenario... What happens next? Because you say in the piece that the unionist voters are politician and politicians are split on on how best to to tackle this. One thing is Boris Johnson just denying that, you know, not allowing a, a second referendum. What's the other scenario there? Well, I suppose the other scenario, well, there's two. Uh, one would be to say, okay, let's just have a snap referendum. You know, yeah. support for independence is around 50%. It's It was 45% in 2014, so it's, it's up around 50%. Actually, in the last year, it was higher than that. It was looking at around sort of 54, even as high as 58% in one poll, but it's fallen back a bit. Um, and so... Uh, you know, you could, if you were a, a unionist and wanted to throw the dice just to call the nationalist bluff, you could say, right, we're going to have a referendum uh, in a year's time, uh, final decision, and, and let's go for that. And, you know, the Better Together camp would crank up again. You'd get the economic arguments, the concerns about debt and about uh, currency and, and about redenomination of pensions and those kind of things, which still have real cachet as, as arguments. You know, they haven't been answered in mm. part because they are a risk. Um, and, you know, you could see, therefore, Scots, having come through the trauma of Brexit, having come through uh, the, the the problem with the pandemic, might think, you know what, we don't really need the hassle at this stage. The other side of that, of course, is that, that Scots think, well, this is our last chance to, 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 to get out of here. You know, we don't like Boris Johnson. We don't like Brexit. We quite like the take back control message that came out in the uh, Brexit referendum. So actually, if we apply that to the the Scottish referendum, then, okay, there's economic risks, but there were economic risks in leaving Europe, and England still jumped for that, so why not? Um, so that's a danger. Um, and the other option would be, of course, to delay it as long as possible, which I think is possibly the more likely outcome uh, in, in that uh, Boris just says no now, uh, and no 
throughout most of the parliament and and just watches the polls and sees if you know if we we come out of brexit and the economy is actually okay for the recovery from uh, pan the pandemic is is strong uh, that people might not want to rock the boat and maybe the SNP want to have the referendum within i think by the end of 2023 so maybe if you're pushing it towards 2024 2025 you've just given the the environment a chance to settle down a little bit and you'll be going into it with a clearer idea of the the likely outcome but but it's always a risk and you know the the, the conservatives the westminster government would simply rather not have a referendum um but there's a danger in that that you're seen to be denying the democratic will of the scottish people and the longer you prevent them from having something they've effectively voted for uh, the more uh, momentum there might be behind Nicola Sturgeon and the Yes movement to push for for a, a referendum that becomes kind of unstoppable. So opposing that in, in the in the case where we did go into a, a, an indie ref too. I mean, twenty fourteen, I think Better Together was led by Alistair Darling. More recently, people would have expected Ruth Davidson to, to take charge. Why, why is her time over and, and, and how has uh, Anasawa emerged as a, a possible leader of a, of a Remain in the Union campaign? Well, Ruth Davidson had a fantastic impact on Scottish politics. I mean, she took the Conservative Party, which with its history in Scotland through the 80s, the Thatcher era, was really in the doldrums. And it was quite hard to see them coming back for quite a long time. But I think there was something about Ruth Davidson, about her personality, her kind of up for itness. Um, she, yeah. you know, she was funny. She was game uh, uh and she was you know serious and um she looked more like one of us than perhaps we'd seen from conservatives in the past she clearly emerged from a, a relatively normal background she sounded like the rest of us that kind of thing and she put a, a smile on the face of conservatism for a while and they came up in the polls they replaced labor as the official opposition at hollywood but um so then it was a year year and a half ago uh ruth decided that she had Done her bit, you know. She'd been leader for a while by that point. Um, I think there was probably something in there about not really wanting to work with Boris Johnson. She had been uh, quite pro-Remain during the Brexit campaign, and you know, I think it's fair to say doesn't didn't then, and I presume now doesn't think very highly of the Prime Minister. Uh, so my feeling is she just decided she'd had a, a baby, she was going to go away and raise the baby uh, and look for a, a different kind of career. She's obviously off to the House of, of Lords now, and she isn't standing in uh, this election for the Conservative Party. So uh, Douglas Ross has taken over uh, and probably hasn't had a great campaign. It's been yeah. very one one note. It's been very no to a referendum. There hasn't really been much discussion of policy. They're very much counting on uh, voters who don't want a, a second referendum voting Tory because that's their absolute guarantee. But the big surprise of this election has been Anna Sarwar, who's been leader of the Scottish Labour Party for about three months, I think. Um, and Anas, uh, who's been around for a while, um, but certainly has changed a lot in the last few years. He's grown into himself. He's matured. And he's, he, you know, during the leaders' debates, the televised leaders' debates that we've had, he's been, uh, you know, just very quite charismatic. He's been a bit more thoughtful. He's tried to position himself somewhere between the SNP and the Tories. So he's not saying never to an independence referendum. But what he's saying is we need to sort the economy coming yeah. out of COVID before we get to that stage. You know, it's just, you can't layer one on top of the other and think it'll work okay. Um, and his personality just seems to work and that kind of thing. That said, I don't think we'll necessarily see much of a shift in the polls at this election. The SNP are far too far ahead. It seems that Labour and the Tories are still in competition for second place. So uh, we may end up in roughly the position we were in after the last election. Uh, um, and I think maybe Anna Sarwar's game is the election after 
this one where he's had time to establish himself amongst the electorate. I, and, and come a second referendum, it's very hard to see who leads the unionist campaign. It won't be Ruth Davidson. I think her credibility is taken a bit of a hit by both resigning and going to the House of Lords. Alistair Darling said he's done his done his piece. Um, and you quite quickly, Gordon Brown undoubtedly would have a role to play, but has he been around too long, too much sort of yesterday's man to, to lead? Uh, and that at the moment leaves you with Anna Sarwar, I think. It certainly couldn't be Boris Johnson. Uh, so so we'll, we'll, I think we'll just have to watch Anna Sarwar over the next sort of year or so and see uh, whether he's got further growth in him and whether he has the shoulders, if you like, to carry the Better Together campaign. Um, in, in, a, in an indie ref too, what part, does rejoining the EU play in a in a yes campaign in a, in a yes to leave in the union campaign? How popular is is, is the EU in, in Scotland now? Do you think after the, the botched vaccine rollout and and the, I mean when you when you watch Sturgeon particularly and she's asked this week about where land and sea borders would be situated in the event of all of this, it is it, incredibly uncomfortable for her. How, how do you see that uh, as part of the campaign? Well, obviously, Scotland voted heavily to stay in the EU, uh, 62 yeah. to 38, which I think these days is a huge gap um, if you look at most democratic uh, events. Um, I don't think people in Scotland necessarily thought the EU was some glorious utopia. I think people had their eyes open about it. They just felt that it, they'd rather be in it than out of it. Um, and having voted to stay in it so comprehensively, to then be dragged out by the union on the basis that England is so much larger, uh, really stuck in the craw. And people didn't feel they were getting listened to. They didn't feel the Scottish viewpoint was was being registered at, at Westminster. And so that, that certainly influenced a number of people moving from no vote in 2014 to a yes vote uh, the next time around, the indie curious, as, as we call them. Um, but that said, you know, there was something like a million Scots voted to leave the EU. That's that's not nothing. That's a, that's a big minority. Um, and indeed, I think something like a third of SNP voters voted to leave the EU. So it's, it's, it's not like everyone thinks one thing on this. And the SNP policy of uh, independence in Europe, they call it independence in Europe, is relatively new. Um, and I think in a way it was created to address the, the, the concern of Scotland leaving the larger state of the UK and going off out on its own into the world and, you know, a little ship in a stormy sea. Yeah. Whereas if they, if we rejoined the EU, you'd have the safety of being in the world's largest economic bloc. Uh, you know, a, a, you'd have that, that kind of weight and that support behind you. But obviously, we've seen what's happened with the vaccine. There's perhaps the sense that Scots need to understand what, what it would be like for Scotland going back in as a, as a member. The fact that we'd be one of the smaller members, uh, you know, we'd be subject to the whims of Germany and France, as, as many of the smaller countries are. We wouldn't have the influence that the United Kingdom had in terms of reform or budgets or anything like that. Um, so, so that conversation, I think, is still really to be had. You know, I've, I've always had the view that, that it might be sensible to detach the two. So you have a referendum on independence and then further down the line, you have a referendum on the relationship with Europe. But the SNP seem wedded to uh, to the membership of the, the European Union. And of course, that raises questions then about uh, your, your economic alignment. You know, is, you've got to have 3% debt to GDP ratio. Uh, at the moment, Scotland's around about 20% and the suggestion is in the next few years it go up 25-26%. So then you've got the possibility of austerity or higher taxes or, or whatever, which gets thrown into the mix. So when people get exposed to th that, that detail, that level of detail of argument, uh, it can maybe make a difference to, to what they're thinking about this issue. 
momentous times ahead in Scotland. We've got May the 6th, we've got an indie, indie Ref 2, possibly mid-2023. And the most momentous of all, the impending release of, of the new single by Fat Cops. <laughs> of course, it's your, it's, it's your I don't know, side project. I don't, I, I don't know how to do d- Describe Fat Cops for people who are unfamiliar with Fat Cops. All right. Uh, so Fat Cops is my band, not my band, our band. Uh, and we formed about three or four years ago. It actually came out of the independence referendum um, from exchanges on Twitter. So Al Murray, the pub landlord comedian, uh, is our drummer. Uh, Bobby Bluebell, who is the songwriter of the Bluebells, Young at Heart, and that kind of thing. He's written for Sinead O'Connor, Brian Wilson. He's our guitarist, one of our songwriters. Uh, there's a couple of journalists in there. And it just sort of, uh, we, we realized we also shared an interest in music as well as politics, and we all played instruments, so we got together, and it worked. And so we, we ended up forming this band. Uh, we recorded an album. Uh, it was really well-reviewed. Uh, uh, we supported the Happy Mondays around Scotland last year, uh, went down and sang with Jules Holland and his band uh, for, for Radio 2. Uh, we've just had extraordinary experiences and, and, you know, you just keep saying yes to things. And, you know, I'm, I'm the youngest in the band and I'm in my mid-40s, so we're not spring chickens. Uh, but as a, as a midlife crisis, I think it's, uh, it certainly beats a, a sports car or a, a girlfriend on the side or whatever. So my family aren't too un, unhappy with it. We've got a new uh, single coming out at the end of May and then we're going to record a new album quite soon as well. There you go. Overnight sensations. It's, uh, <laughs> it's been great Something having you, Chris. And I hope we can. Uh, I hope we can talk again, and it'll be amazing to to see what happens in the next uh, the next few days, but also over the next few months too. Chris Deering, thanks very much. Thanks, Steve. And finally, inevitably, we get to the Hall of Shame. It's our new home for rubbish ministers, political blather, things that generally annoy me. Let's start with Therese Coffee, shall we? Called on to defend Boris Johnson on Tuesday's round of TV and radio interviews, the Work and Pension Secretary. She implied that the allegations made by Dominic Cummings had very little credibility because, and I'm quoting, a lot of people will have seen Dominic Cummings for the first time ever last year when he gave a press conference in the Rose Garden at number 10. They will have come to their own views, I'm sure, the public. Well, that was pretty disdainful about Dominic Cummings, wasn't it? So I'm sure Therese Coffey will be absolutely furious when she finds out the identity of the person who said shortly after that Rose Garden press conference, as far as I can see, Dominic Cummings stuck to the rules and he acted legally and responsible. And then that same person kept Dominic Cummings in a well-paid job for the next six months. I wonder who that could Alack, it's Anne Widdicombe Corner. Yes, it's the part of the podcast where we go through Anne Widdicombe's column in the Daily Express. And it's no surprise that this week she's talking about Boris Johnson. And I loved this turn of phrase from her. To those who are baying for blood because Boris Johnson exchanged in a text exchange with James Dyson over the supply of ventilators, all I can say is, frankly, my dears, I don't give a dash. Yes, I don't give a dash. No, I don't give a damn. It's a reminder there that Anne, who loves to insult her opponents, in fact, this week she called feminists the screeching sisterhood, she gets all coy when it comes to swearing. In fact, she once said, I cannot bear the language TV chefs use. They don't seem to be able to look at a plate of vegetables without accusing it of sexual activity. Hmm. But I do want to pick up one other thing from this week's Anne Widdicombe column, which we've touched on before in this podcast, but indulge me here. Anne Widdicombe writes, then there is the matter of the fact. The man was an ass not to have said no when Carrie moaned that perfectly adequate accommodation did not suit her modern tastes. But Boris Johnson had a lot of other stuff to think about, and if rich friends were prepared to treat him, so be it. Well, 
No. And also notice something Nadine Doris, who is a health minister, although frankly in cover your ears here, and Christ knows how, it comes with something that Nadine Doris tweeted this week. She tweeted, it is none of your business how Boris Johnson paid for the refurbishment of his Downing Street flat. Well, of course it's our business. And of course his rich friends shouldn't just chip in. Are we really suggesting that it would be none of our business or it wouldn't matter if Boris Johnson had paid for the refurbishment of his Downing Street flat with a loan from James Dyson, so, you know, a loan from Donald Trump, a loan from Vladimir Putin? What if it was paid by H? From line of duty, what it was even worse. What if it was paid for by H from steps? And finally, here's a trivia quiz for you. Who in October 2019 called Boris Johnson a good friend and a fabulous friend to the union? Yes, it was, of course, Arlene Foster, who will now have plenty of time to invite her fabulous friend round for dinner next time he's in Belfast. Let's just hope there's no John Lewis in her dining room. Arlene Foster then joining the long list of people who've lost their jobs because they believe in Boris Johnson. To coin a phrase, the bodies really are piling up. Well, that was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. I hope you enjoyed it. My thanks to Alistair Campbell, to Tim Walker, to Chris Deering. Please remember to rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice. Positive reviews mean a lot to us. Subscribe to the New European at theneweuropean.co.uk slash save. £10 a month, you get the printed and e-editions each week. The first 200 to subscribe will get a signed copy of the latest volume of Alistair Campbell's Diaries. You can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow The New European at The New European on Twitter. And you can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. See you next week. Mr Campbell, play those bagpipes. There you go. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.